What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This is Conspiranormal. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Uh, it's been a minute, but uh, we are back. Um, we're going to have a couple of people that were presenters at Strange Realities. And uh, one we have is uh, at the moment is uh, Mr. Jose Herrera. Hey, fellas. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's always great to have you Welcome on. Welcome back. Um, we were just having a really great discussion off air, I guess you could say. And we're just going to continue it here. Uh, Ren Collier will be joining us uh, hopefully shortly. And uh, we'll get him as in here as well. He had some questions that he wanted to ask you too, but um, back in October when we had the conference, um, we had you do a presentation about Meta War, and if uh, anybody wants to watch that, I mean, that's still, of course, available uh, on our Strange Realities uh, private Facebook group, which, um, you know contact me work something out there's all the presentations are up there for strange realities 2021 but uh, jose yours was a very interesting one um and you um were smart and you actually rec- did a whole recording so we like lot we lost you i think your wi-fi went out or something and then so we just i had the recording backed up so i just went up to the backup and that was a interesting morning but you uh, can tell he's a military man with those contingency plans Yeah, exactly exactly um so we're going to talk a little bit about this metal war concept we had you on back was it end of last year i think beginning of this year yeah i think it was towards the end of last year so i mean it's been it's been about a year since we've had you on and um I think really what we're going to be looking at tonight is kind of more the concept of meta war and also 
mental health and how that fits into the, into the whole thing. So let's start off with just a little bit of background on you for people that may have not, not have heard that show since it's been a little bit and talk about how your wartime experiences helped you look into this concept. Yeah, sure. Um, once again, man, thank you for having me on, allowing me to share some of these concepts. Um, born in San Antonio, Texas, uh, moved to New Mexico um, six years after I was born in 87. Um, I kind of knew there was a period where I was watching the invasion of Iraq take place in McDonald's, and instantly I had an attraction to it. And that's I knew that I was going to join the military. Uh, I was going to be Marine. Um, November 2006, went to MCRD San Diego, completed boot camp training. Then I went to School of Infantry to become uh, an 0311 Marine Rifleman. And then uh, six months, or uh, April of 2007, got sent to my unit, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. Um, and then six months later, I was in Iraq doing operations in a place called uh, Ramadi, Iraq, in Al-Ambar province. Um, I served four years and 10 months, completed three combat tours, um, deployed in 2009 for Operation Kanjar, Strike of the Sword. It was a major operation, uh, basically another invasion of Iraq, or uh, uh, Helmand province, taking out Taliban, um, came back, deployed again in January of uh, 2011 to a place called Karizi Saidi in Marshall District, and basically took out Taliban or what was left to them. And, uh, you know, there's a, you know, those are back-to-back combat tours. Um, you know, you see some stuff, you deal with some stuff. Uh, they don't really teach you how to, like, deal with, you know, the after effects of all that stuff. Uh, so it was kind of like a long road to recovery, but I, essentially um, I ended up taking a break from operations. I kind of wanted to come back, but I didn't. So in September, 27, 2011, I left the Marine Corps and uh, <laughs> my body basically just fell apart just from the wear and tear. Wow. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I ended up finding myself at the university of North Carolina. Um, and for two years, I was kind of lost until I found myself into the philosophy and religion department. And I had the opportunity to uh, meet George Zervos, who really um, kind of sealed the deal for me to stay in the department. Uh, and then I also had the uh, honor and privilege of meeting uh, Dr. Walsh Pasulka, um, later becoming her student and uh, kind of becoming her mentee in this uh, odd world of philosophy and religion, new APs and the whole works. And in 2016, I graduated, wrote my memoir, uh, talking about a series of claims about what was happening within the military um, as a result of the very politicized environment that the military was undergoing. Um, so a lot of people don't understand that, you know, in small unit leadership uh, type of environments, um, it's not necessarily that the officers become obsolete. It's just more power is given to uh, Lance Corporals, Corporals, um, low ranking you know, members in a squad or in a fire team or in a platoon, and then you run the operations. And, um, you know, when you have ego, when you have poor leadership training and you have lack of experience. So by the time I was, you know, 22, I was on my third combat tour and you have some officer coming in, they're kind of like, you know, in their mid twenties, late twenties, you know, so I was well endowed with the skill set, knew what we were doing, uh, got very political people ended up dying um, by the time changes were made, uh, it was already too late. But nonetheless, you know, we ended up uh, doing some good work down there. 
Uh, and then shortly right after that, uh, my graduation, 2016, I'm jumping around, but uh, I ended up making a decision of going back into the world of operations. So uh, I kind of went down this uh, mercenary route, uh, started contracting for uh, an organization called Academy, which used to be Blackwater, uh, working with State Department. Um, I was on a Phantom team and a Iron team. So I was doing, I guess, quote unquote, secret missions, taking uh, American diplomats into the red zone, uh, dressing up like the Afghans. And then um, I got really strange there. Uh, again, you know, Kabul, Afghanistan was very kinetic at the time. Um, it's taken me a very long time to talk about uh, some of the more anomalous experiences that have happened on the battle space. And uh, so in 2018, when I was, when I was in Kabul, you know, this voice kept telling me, Hey, Jose, go home, go home. And uh, I had recognized this voice. It's the same voice, the same kind of like uh, sixth sense type of thing that was, that allowed me to traverse the battle space in between, you know, my, you know, in between uh, 2007 and 2011. And uh, I listened to it, you know, I came home and uh, I picked up where I last left off in terms of some of the more, um, critical claims about military service and what was taking place and how fourth-gen warfighting was being transitioned to fifth-gen warfighting, uh, what the ethical standards were going to be in terms of how we viewed ethics in terms of like the Aristotelian virtue ethics system that it was. And uh, then uh, the suicides, you know, the suicide had been taking place for a very long time in my unit. It was kind of like a, a dark cloud that had lingered. And uh, in 2019, I kind of went through my own a uh, little phase. Basically, the past had caught up to me. Uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, I didn't know anything about a VA. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff and uh, kind of went down a route where I needed help, but they didn't give me the help that I needed. They told me no. So I basically said, no, I'm not going to come back ever again. And anyway, um, after micro fractures in the brain and dealing with blast and all that other stuff, you know, I ended up getting sent to a VA hospital and getting checked out and all that other stuff. And uh, between there, I kind of got this uh, download or what they call a download of was basically a blueprint of what I needed to do in order to stop the suicide epidemic and assist in mental health degradation. And ever since then, I've been working on a blueprint um, to basically present to the department of defense uh, to the National Institute of Mental Health of how we can use um, what I would call, you know, a new mental health paradigm with a wartime adaptation and certain precognitive um, capabilities in order to deter suicide. Uh, but of course, that comes with specific types of safeguards. Um, we have a lot of critical vulnerabilities. Uh, I can't remember the website's name, but, you know, we have constant cyber attacks. A lot of this stuff can be used against us. Uh, I think right now the big trend uh, between like General Spalding and some of his folks that were uh, writing 5G policy, working, you know, to basically outline what was going on in China. Uh, they're basically talking about uh, debt and data traps. Uh, so essentially China, in the Belt and Road Initiative, they've uh, promised, you know, all this building stuff. So I think the port of like Sri Lanka, uh, they couldn't pay back loans. So China enveloped them. So now China is using their port for the PLAN, which is the People's Liberation Army Navy. Um, and they're using their fisheries as an extension of the PLAN. 
Um, so gradually they're enveloping countries, ports, uh, critical infrastructures around the globe in order to uh, establish their their hegemony. Sounds like they learned that from the IMF and the World Bank, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, good book to read is Stealth War. Uh, General Spalding uh, basically sat on Trump's uh, National Security Council, wrote 5G policy, but he also had the privilege of going to China, living in China, um, and going to school there, learning everything about what needed to take place. And uh, eventually he saw kind of the changes that were taking place when President Xi Jinping came into power and basically, um, you know, their, I, I guess their, their map to 2049 or 2020, made in China 2025. And then, you know, they're going to envelop the world by 2049 or whatever their, you know, thing is. And he began to speak out against it. No one else was talking about it, national security. And um, essentially, after a series of talks and he ended up getting compromised, um, he ended up having to step down and he went about it through a civilian format by becoming an entrepreneur and creating technologies that are EMP resistant and uh, flame or solar flame resistant. And um, probably it's called the Semper AI tower. Basically, you're able to communicate with other 5G towers um, and it's uh, basically encrypts everything that you're doing in terms of like data. Uh, so they can't hack it. And if there is an EMP that ever does take place, uh, your data, your systems are protected. And he's trying to make that, I mean, he's basically made it very cost effective for any, any like civilian entity needing that type of capability. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so a lot of this is about adapting defensively to the, the changing battlefield. And war is rapidly changing into a space that's more on individual and mental level. So the final frontier is really the, the inner space. So, yeah, um, one of the claims that I make, and it's kind of controversial, um, I don't think, I mean, look, I, this is my opinion. We're in World War Three already. That's why I call it Metal War. Okay. Um, the only thing is, is we're not dropping bombs and shooting bullets and having field their armies and stuff like that. If it is, it's in a very clandestine type of setting. Uh, and even that is traversing a fine line. So it's very difficult. Um, China, their pillar of uh, propaganda, right? They're spending a lot of money and they're hiring a lot of bodies in order to cognitively attack, you know, Western uh, countries in terms of, you know, the media state or social media influence. I, I think this is my belief. China is not going to do some crazy attack. It's not going to send in a hypersonic missile to hit Washington, D.C. or anything like that. Anything like that would basically rally, you know, Western democracies to come together and basically boot Xi Jinping out. And together, Xi Jinping can't handle handle that type of military superiority. So what he's going to do and what basically NATO has done is focused on the cognitive or what they would call cognitive warfare, not just from a social media or mediated state point of view, but also the new uh, weapon systems that are coming into play, like microwave energy blast being conducted on embassies and intelligence community members. Um, so I don't know if you've kept up with that, but the 2022 intelligence authorization summary uh, basically outlined a series of fundings. Um, a lot of money is going into a lot of anomalous health detection. So they basically told a lot of these people that were being 
bombarded with microwave energies, whether it was from the Russians or from Chinese or some other political lacquer, um, that, hey, you know, we don't know if you're telling the truth or not. Uh, and for a very long time, a lot of these people suffered um, some serious stuff. And I think I think one of the um, CIA paramilitary guys that was in Russia, they got blasted by one of these microwaves. Um, he was saying that, you know, during his sleep, whenever this took place, uh, the microwave energy that hit him was equivalent to him being basically blown up by an ID, but inside the brain. So if you can imagine the concussion and the, the type of activity from just invisible uh, energy hitting your brain, you know, it's, it's going to do some damage. This is like the shit of old conspiracy theories, like, you know, targeted individuals and this kind of stuff that, you know, we'd laugh at all these tinfoil hat people, but this stuff is, is real and employed by these states now. Yeah. And commercial technologies, well, technologies are being pumped through and created exponentially that, you know, regulations can't keep up with it. So it's like, everything's being commercialized. Like uh, I was having a conversation about the, I don't know if you've seen the new fireworks drones, like the drones that use lights, you know, all you need is an algorithm in order to hijack that and use that as a, an attack on a, on a city. And um, I think Dr. Mossbridge put up an article on LinkedIn talking about how her father wrote an article, like imagine if all the drones in New York city got hijacked and began to hit people. You know, this is the world that we're living in, where these capabilities, and I think I used the Wasp, Eric Frank Russell's uh, book, The Wasp. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that. I thought that was an excellent analogy. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's become a wasp. You know, everyone's become a combatant. And uh, But give that story, though, why that, that's important, why you say wasp, but we're not... We're not talking about white Anglo-Saxon people. <laughs> right, right. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Yeah. <laughs> no, so uh, in the beginning, they were recruiting members um, to become this thing called the WASP. And uh, the guy that's uh, interviewing John Mowry basically uh, issues him a series of intel briefs. One of the intel briefs was uh, a prison break where like four guys got out of a prison, got 600 miles, got in a, a car and while they were in a car, uh, a wasp happens to get in there and the little wasp, you know, begins to move around and these guys freak out. And basically, the wasp turns, you know, a big metallic, you know, thing into a heaping scrap of metal and basically, you know, all four members die. And the whole point was, is that, it, you know, size, uh, capability, all that stuff really doesn't matter. Um, what does matter is the the way you're trained and the way you use that training um so essentially uh john mallory is able to take down an entire planet by doing like nine types of uh clandestine operations some of that being putting memes in uh specific locations so he he basically creates fields of atmosphere um so imagine if me going into china and basically saying the CCP is not powerful at all and putting actual like, you know, little uh, printed out posters everywhere. Um, and it would also create empowerment for some of the people that are anti-CCP. Um, and he ends up escalating it, you know, he ends up kidnapping some people, he ends up assassinating some people, hiring some people to do his work. Some, some of the stuff that's being done right now in terms of the militancy between the alt-right or the extreme right and the extreme left, or the in-between, depending on how you want to view that. 
before we get Ren in here, let's talk about the association with mental health and some of the statistics that you use about mental health and especially about suicide. I, I was, um, that was pretty eye opening when I watched that earlier today from your presentation about some of the, the some of the stats. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons why I got into this type of research and started forming it was because um, one, it's very, very personal. Um, my unit, talks about it, but very vaguely. Uh, So in my unit, I think there's been like 52 suicides. Uh, This is an infantry unit. Uh, The Biden-Harris administration has just recently released uh, a summary of what they're going to promise veterans specifically. And they basically said that the veteran suicides uh, that were recorded from 2010 to this point um, has exceeded the amount of combat deaths in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So a total of 65,000 uh, veteran suicides have taken place since 2010. Okay, so it's it's a problem. Um, one of the other claims that I have, and these are actual statistics, uh, but they also released uh, recently that now instead of 51.5 million people having AMI, which is any mental illness, it's 52 million. And these are just the ones that are recorded. Okay. So the National Institute of Mental Health um, has put out publications indicating that there are 52 million people in the United States that suffer from any, any mental illness. And that's ranging from anything from, you know, schizophrenia all the way to depression, anxiety. And the way that the technology has enmeshed with um, our economy and the way that we use everything as an information hub, uh, and the way the technology has been used to keep us um, addicted or and or on these smart devices um, is contributing to mental health degradation. And as a result of great uh, power competition, political uh, actors and nation states wanting to undermine U.S. influence, they can't use uh, kinetics. Why? Because it's kind of become taboo and it also undermines a lot of their efforts that are being done on the global uh, uh, front. Uh, so, for example, I talked about China's Belt and Road Initiative. That they began bombing the United States or taking out smaller countries in terms of kinetics. That's not going to look good on their part. So they want to do it very, very subtly. Right. So they take a lot of Sun Tzuian, uh principles and they apply them to a lot of their uh, capabilities. So. The claim that I'm making is if I really wanted to cause and, you know, cause maximum damage, my target audience would be that 52 million people that have AMI. Why? Neurochemically, they're already compromised. They lack resources to seek the proper therapies. Um, COVID has really isolated us. So the ability to go outside and have certain types of experiential therapies and modalities like hiking, right, um, are being taken away uh, as a result of either one fear or as a result of like local regulations and stuff. So it creates the perfect conditions to use weaponized content, right? So what's the weaponized content, right? Well, we can look at simple uh, sociopolitical stuff, right? So if I'm going to create a meme, right, that basically focuses on, you know, how the left or whatever the right is doing something, I'm going to create certain visuals. I'm going to put certain words on it. There's an algorithm, right? Um, All that stuff is going to get propagated. 
that's going to persist, that's going to have some type of impact. And the people that are addicted, that are isolated, are going to continuously read this stuff and their little HPA axis is going to get activated and whatever pre-existing issues they already have is going to get even worse. And so what you have is um, a contagion, right? So not only just you have like COVID-19 propagating and passing on, you also have the mental health contagion, right? So 1994, the CDC did a series of studies basically saying that memetics can be applied to suicide, meaning that suicide is contagious. So we've noticed, they noticed that every time there is a suicide that's a high profile, the way that they report it has to be a certain way. Why? Because there's going to be other increases in suicide. And so they found that through other series of studies, um, the way that they report this and the way that it's being done um, can have a mass effect. So let's say I wanted to target a population that's already predisposed to this. Let's say the veteran population, right? One, there already is a pre-existing issue that they're already deemed ill as a result of supposed wartime experiences or just that lifestyle. They're going to use culturally sensitive issues like the fall of Afghanistan. Then they're going to create mock Facebook pages, Instagram pages. They're going to fill it up with the most vile stuff that uh, you can imagine. They're going to propagate it. They're going to go after people. And there's an interesting part where humans have begun now to decipher the difference between a bot and a human being. And so they're using humans now to make it more organic, make it more real. And they're using uh, mock veteran or mock uh, uh, chartered veteran organizations in order to get that actually passed on. You showed some of that in the presentation too. Like a lot of those memes and I, I can honestly remember seeing those uh, just like, you know, it said something like desert storm veterans. It ended up being a Russian site. If you go and look at like, you know, Facebook got wise, you go and look at the admins, it's like from different countries. Um, so all that kind of stuff that you showed was, was very, was, was very, very interesting and very revealing. Um, I'm just, a uh, something I found interesting in that statistics about suicide, it's around about 45,000 seems like per year, seems like it kind of sticks that way. However, in 2020, there was actually a little bit of a drop in suicide. And I can remember when COVID first started, people were saying, well, people are going to be committing suicide left and right because of the depression and everything. But actually, it seemed like it trended a little bit more downward in 2020. So I wondered, I kind of wonder what the factor is with that. Yeah. I think people were relaxed. I was. I was like, no school? Great. No work? (laughs) Great. And I'm getting paid, you know, I can go file for uh, unemployment. Yeah, so those early days were good to go. But then you get a national tragedy like George Floyd take place and get exploited. And then it all goes to shit. Right. So I think that's where the dip took place. A lot of Americans needed a break. And I'm not too sure what the statistic now, but I know it was like a few years ago where it was like Americans are working longer, harder than ever before in American history. Um, I think the average um, hourly wage that someone needs in order to to basically find rent or have rent is like $18 an hour. And 
the majority of Americans, you know. Yeah, I'd say here in Nashville, it's much, it's more than that at this point. Um, But also, one thing I wanted to point out: the school board meetings. I mean, people were laughing about a lot of the kind of like nutty people that were showing up, but honestly, it's really not. It's really serious because it's what you're really saying is that what these other nations are doing is basically using our own mentally ill people against us as a weapon. Yeah. Cambridge Analytica was doing it. They did it in 2020 and they got caught doing it. Uh, they were targeting uh, the mentally ill uh, in religious uh, areas like, like churches. Uh, and they were uh, basically um, weaponizing them for all right stuff. And, uh, and that's the other part. You don't know who out there is, so this is what I, so some of the consultant work that I do, um, I, I, I break off with this because we usually typically go find ourselves in this conversation. I say, look, how much of what is propagating, you know, online and face-to-face um, was actually artificially created by, let's say, the Internet Research Agency or the WOMAO? How much of that is created by a troll, propagated by a troll? The meme that you're talking about or the context that you're talking about, how much of that was artificially created? Now we have to look at the analytics. What are you talking about? You know, what was the white supremacy always this big of an issue? I don't think so. But then again, I'm Mexican and I can traverse that line because what are they going to do? They're going to attack me for what are they going to attack me for? You know what I'm saying? I'm providing the DOD publications, the analytics coming from the best of the best. And we're not putting two into two. And a lot of folks, you know, they're slapping around this word, you know, psychological operations, it's a psyop, but people don't actually know what's in a psyop and what it actually does to the brain chemistry or what it does to entire groups. And we need to identify that. We need to talk about that, what it's doing to us. Yeah, because you're saying it's, we're thinking of these things as mental, but they actually have, are having physical uh, implications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they modified behavior, but the deeper issue is those modified behaviors lead to uh, epigenetic changes. Suicide being the the absolute extreme. Yeah, yeah. Or you becoming a bad actor yourself and doing harm unto others. And again, you know, that's the how many of those people were weaponized. You know, uh, either way, it's killing Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Or the the more uh, the end goal that I say is just make the United States just this chaotic environment where foreign policy or geopolitical issues essentially don't get talked about to the point where and, and this is kind of what's happened with the fall of Afghanistan. We can't promise stability in some of these more tumultuous regions. And China and Russia are banking on that. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, about two months ago, they finally announced that we're going to go ahead and bring a, a subsidiary company or a company uh, of the Taiwan microchip processing uh, company here to the United States because China is going after Taiwan. They need mm-hmm. Taiwan in order to fulfill their vision. And so, you know, China is not going to attack right away. Um, there's even talks now that, you know, Taiwan has the ability to deter an attack from China. But again, you know, what can the United States promise? We've been at war for the past 20 years. We spent 
$8 trillion. Um, look at the damage that we've caused uh, from, from those wars. Can, can we promise another country a legitimate force? No, I don't think we can. And we're still going through, um, you know, some of the more uh, recent transitions. A lot of folks don't realize that in order, whenever you bring in a new weapon system or a new uh, flying, you know, or a new uh, helicopter or something like that, it takes like 24 months to trade up an entire group. Like it's long, hard hours. Um, and now they're trying to, it's crazy. The Marine Corps Times just published how they're going to begin to hire civilians to come in as ranked enlisted personnel because they don't, they can't find the people uh, with the capable skill sets to conduct these types of operations. So they're not even going to have to go through boot camp anymore. They're just going to be hired on as civilians, but under, you know, the guise of a gunnery sergeant and then fill in the ranks where they need to because that's how far behind we are. And this is all in this, uh, your metawar paradigm is all in the backdrop of a changing world order and what essentially was declared in 2018, which is that we are now in a multipolar world. Um, I actually was studying international relations in the, uh, the, the first decade of the millennium and there was still a, the big question was, you know, whether we're going to have a continuation of the unipolar world with America as a, as a hegemon versus is there going to be a return to a multipolar world? And that's like way over now. Like it is a multipolar world already. And that's being acknowledged at the highest levels. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially like what you were mentioning with Taiwan, um, Taiwan, shouldn't trust that America is going to step in if China does anything. Uh, just like, uh, you know, just like how we stood by and uh, let Russia take Crimea. Um, we're not like, what What teeth does NATO even have anymore? Um, I don't think any country in the world could rely on America to be an ally. And I think that, I mean, you know, just this week, I think we're seeing troop build up on the Russian-Ukrainian border again. And I, I think it's because like America doesn't have any teeth anymore and other countries know this. Right. So they're like, I think as long you mentioned like the unipolar world thing, I think as long as that the petrodollar is still the reserve currency of the world, like American hegemony is, is relatively safe. At least it's harder to rest away. Um, but it you know, remains to be seen if, if the dollar is going to remain the global reserve currency. So once that starts to fall apart, I think that's when you'll really see these other countries take the reins. Yeah. All bets are off after that. Yeah. I say we got about a 10 to 20 year opportunity to fix all that. Um, but going back to that Russia thing, uh, I think that's reflexive control theory. Um, they did that. So they basically did 18 months of shaping, uh, decisive shaping and the actual operation was two weeks. So, uh, I was just listening to um, Ukrainian soldiers on, uh, I think, on the front line. I can't remember specifically where, uh, but they were fighting uh, pro-Russian separatists. Um, so the battle is actually going on right now. Yeah, um, yeah, it's already kind of started. Um, hey, I just listened to something this morning on uh, uh, the War Nerds podcast, so Gary Brecher and Mark Ames, and it was like a good sort of summary of like current events. People are curious. Is this still um, concentrated on like the Dunbos region? I think it's called that old industrial part. 
Yeah. Yeah. Still so, still I mean, if I'm not mistaken, fighting never really ended there, right? right. Like, it's it kind of been, been like a little seven conflict seven for years. years. Yeah. Yeah. Since 2014. They're but just going to pick at it. Up again. Pick at it. Pick at it. Pick at it. We'll never go full skill because then mm. we'll have to respond. And of course, we're not supporting the best um, irregular armies there, <laughs> to say the least. Either. Yeah, because there are a lot of Nazis, basically. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. That's that's true too, Jose. Just as an aside, I'm I'm, I'm curious as an as a uh, Afghan war vet, you know how you felt about us pulling out of there and and how it went and just you know I mean that's got to be something that really that is feeding into the I mean the mental health of your fellow vets. Yeah, that was one of the. Uh... A lot of guys feel so. Look, I look at it this way: militarily, we 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 accomplished everything that they tasked us out to do. We never failed. Like we, you know, close with destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver to repel the enemy's assault. You know, slay bodies. That's what we were there to do, right? Then they gave us these other side missions to accomplish as well. We did those as well. I think one of the last missions was to what stand up a school. Uh, so one of my last missions as a Marine rifleman was uh, protecting children uh, to go to school. And uh, I did that. I don't know if they're alive or not. I'm sure the Taliban killed them because that stuff isn't, you know, one of those things. But militarily, we accomplished everything that we needed to do. Diplomatically, I think we failed. And I can say that, I can say that uh, because I was on the ground in Kabul doing this work, this type of work, seeing how these diplomats talk and stuff like that and how they deal with some of this money um that there were some uh red flags to be raised and uh you know again gray zone challenges are very very unique there's no actual doctrine so i do feel that diplomatically we could have done something different um i think it was already too late um now i think maybe it's more of an ego thing you know like i didn't lose a war you know what i'm saying I'm still here. Like we got body count, you know, I'm still fighting the fight. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? So maybe that's the ego thing that's kicking everyone's butt, but how much of that being propagated is, you know, trolls, bad actors, so forth and so forth. Right. Trying to mobilize a group of individuals that are tactically and strategically sound to move against the government or another soft target. Right. So yeah, it does feed into it. A lot of guys are upset about it. Um, you know, all I can do is listen. Um, but yeah, strategically, it was a failure. We lost uh, Bagram, which was crucial to protecting Taiwan. Um, and not only that, uh, we gave up basically $3 trillion to the CCP. Now they control the... Um, the flow of uh, natural resources that are needed to create specific technologies that we use every day. Um, conspiracy wise, we just gave them a $3 trillion check to back out. You know what I'm saying? Can you elaborate on that concept of gray zone? Yeah. So it's just uh, gray zones are, are, are very old. Um, they've been used before they were used during Kennedy's time. Um, so Gray zones are basically uh, a mixture of political, economic, uh, lawfare uh, types of activities that are used against the United States. So, for example, 
um, whenever China was creating their artificial islands, right? They were dredging and they were building up all this stuff. And uh, now they're using their fisheries um, as an extension of the PLAN. So they're getting closer to Japanese islands. Um, they're going way beyond their fishing points, traversing, uh, getting over uh, certain um, um, maritime uh, borders. Um, uh, they're, they're basically obfuscating. They're, they're uh, using uh, certain techniques where they'll push up to the point where they're about to attack, but they won't attack, which puts us on, on edge because then we have our OODA loop, right? Our ability to make a decision whether we should attack them or not becomes that much harder because we don't know if they're going to follow through, right? So let's say, for example, um, they just... Uh, Just like take, take for example, like the fisheries, for example, right? Those fisheries, we know that they're using them for an extension of the PLAN. They get close to our, you know, uh, ships. Do we have the authority to blast them? How do we know that they're actual fisheries? How do we know that they're actual PLAN? We don't, and that makes it much that much harder. Um, and you know, if we were to get too lax and allow their, you know, their boats, their fishing boats to get close enough to us to attack us, then it'd be perfect for them, right? So that's something that we're always on edge. And that's just one aspect of it. Um, and again, you know, gray zones challenges are, are, are always unique. It's actually one of the downfalls of the United States. And I give the example that um, the white paper where U.S. SOCOM basically analyzed the 100 years of warfare uh, out of those 57 instances, I think 43 of those were uh, gray zone uh, challenges. Basically, we never resolved the issue. Um, we just basically contained it somewhat and then walked away from it. And again, these are destabilizing the regions. These are allowing other vectors to fill in a vacuum where we then can't step in, where we have to begin to analyze again. Um, uh, the social media thing is, is one of those gray zone challenges, right? How do you handle that? Right. We have physical weapon systems and borders and doctrine to stop physical attacks from coming to the United States. Um, but then again, when it comes to our, our data, uh, we basically give any bad actor bitstream data. Right. We give them our, our location. We give them our IP addresses. We give them pictures of us um, and they do whatever they want with it. And again, how do you respond to that? Do you limit do you change? Do you censor? What do you do? Do you build firewalls? Right? How do you how do you begin to assess those situations? And this is a problem with a democracy because on one end, when you begin to present the solutions that are necessary in order to do something about it, one side is going to see something else as tyrannical, and another side is going to see that as ah, this is exactly what we need. Kind of like the COVID nineteen shot, right? There's a lot of issues with that. And uh, how do you, again, raise on challenges? Um, I could read you the definition, but it's just a mixture of all these warfares yeah. put into one. And I think people would have a, the most popular conception is probably like the idea that people have of the Cold War, not the using proxies in other countries necessarily, but like we were in a conflict and everything that happened was part of a conflict, even though there was an open kinetic warfare. Yeah. Or it was proxies being used, like in the Korean War. Yeah. 
Let's let Ren get in here. Ren, I know you had some questions and some things that you wanted to ask Jose. And... Yeah. So, I mean, I, I thought your, your presentation was really fascinating, Jose. And like one thing though, I wanted to ask you about what your opinion on, like you seem really focused on um, like foreign actors um, using like this, these medic warfare methods to uh, try to influence things that happen um, domestically here in the States. And that makes sense, right? Because the like social media provides like a perfect propaganda attack service for anybody, right? Like it, you have a captive audience, you have um, applications that are effectively Skinner boxes that like uh, give you hits of dopamine when people like and retweet, like whatever you post, like they're, they're designed with like, uh, like addictive, like casino type, um, like user loops in order to keep people using them. So they're, they provide the perfect delivery method for psychological operations. Um, but one thing I thought was really interesting and in, in some research I've been getting into recently was the prevalence of um, intelligence actors, like domestic intelligence actors in early internet forum culture, like specifically like something awful, uh, 4chan in like the early years. Um, there are some good threads about this by uh, Crypto Cuttlefish on, on Twitter that I've, I've read through. Um, but the basic idea being that a lot of like early internet troll culture was built um, in order to test if you could convince a group of people who were shielded by anonymity to harass and attack specific targets. Um, to the point of maybe causing them to commit suicide or just like basically carry it. Like, can you, can you crowdsource your, your sort of uh, soldiers, like from just anonymous internet users. And I, I think it's really interesting when you factor in that people like Michael Aquino used to get into arguments with people like on Usenet and like, like early you know internet message boards and stuff. And, you know, he was uh, army psyops guy who worked in the Phoenix program and I'm just curious how you feel about, like, are these programs also being used by our own country against its population in order to pacify, control, or influence how we think and act? Yeah, we have a long history. Um, look at the Cointel pros of the, like, early uh, mm-hmm. 60s, 70s. You know, they used those to uh, essentially take out the uh, Black Panther Party and the Brown Berets and so forth and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. They've been using it for a very long time. Um, again, you know, you can't just shoot somebody in the head because it's going to cause a lot of problems. So it's easier and a lot, I think, well, you might consider it humane to modify someone's behavior through second or tier third effects, right? And so influencing a friend to influence that friend, right? And Major Prosser wrote about this in his 2008 paper, uh, which was used by Dr. Finkelstein in the military memetics program um, that was funded by DARPA. But um, yeah. They use it all the time. Why wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. Um, Are you guys uh, um, like I've been reading uh, Program to Kill lately. Have any of you guys read Program to Kill? Yeah. Yeah. We both read it. Yeah. I just I, I feel like I'm late to the game on this book, but uh, it's been very eye opening uh, to the extent that like learning about how. It, I, I think it's really key, like how this all seems to derive from like Phoenix program stuff. Like, how do you get the domestic forces of a country? Um, in most cases, like like in Vietnam, we used their domestic police and civilian populations 
to carry out this basically like terrorism program in order to pacify and dismantle the Viet Cong. And you look at the early, like you sort of look at the post-Vietnam situation in America where you had the new left and the Black Panthers, you had a lot of social upheaval. And you see a concerted effort on a lot of fronts, I think, to uh, use new media systems um, to control populations. Like I, this was blowing my mind recently when I was researching this, but that you look at a lot of the people who were involved in the early, uh, early establishment of like PBS and they're all like either intelligence guys themselves or have like ties to intelligence. And you, there's like white papers by the Rand corporation, by some of the guys who like found like children's television workshop who were talking about the potential to use cable television and public broadcasting as a way to pacify the ghetto dwellers, like quote unquote ghetto dwellers. And it's, it's really chilling because you're realizing that like, that was just one aspect of it. Right. And you look at the, like you brought up the whole George Floyd thing, the militarization of police and like, especially uh, during the Obama presidency, um, bringing in, giving police departments huge grants, military weapons and vehicles, military training. And that like stinks to me of like domestic Phoenix program type stuff, because you're using you're using this sort of domestic organization to terrorize its own population, either into submission or, um, you know, whatever. And, the, you know, the whole program to kill thesis is that. Uh, like serial killers, you know, were used for people who are listening who aren't familiar that serial killers were created basically as a way to terrorize people and sort of push them into the arms of the reactionary right wing conservative, you know, side of things, but like the satanic panic and stuff. Kind of like the Unabomber too. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar idea that, <laughs> but a lot of this stuff is like manufactured and it, like lately I get very, I've been, I don't know, very paranoid conspiratorial brain lately. No, not you, Ren. No, I know. Um, yeah. Reading, reading program to kill before going to bed every night has not been, I would say healthy, but I'm getting through it. But uh, it's, it's interesting, but I do think uh rest in peace. I think McGowan, um, he takes some liberties in that and in his other, some of his other stuff, but he's, he's a, he has some very interesting, unique perspectives on a lot of different stuff. Especially focusing on like Henry Lee Lucas, which is kind of uh, iffy because Henry Lee Lucas was a notorious liar. And yeah, but then there's stuff that he said that like matches up with unrelated stuff like the Matamoros Mexico cult, right? Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's like, how much was he lying and how much was he just stretching the truth a little bit? And um, But what I was going to mention... I, in my more paranoid moments lately, I've been wondering how, like, if you look at a lot of recent mass shootings or, you know, guys who just drive into a crowd of protesters or whatever, these like random acts of terror, once you start looking at them a little closer and like, they seem to be a little less random, I think, than they're being given credit for. Um, like a lot of times, these people seem to be cultivated by the FBI or the CIA, or they're sort of pushed into doing it by these organizations. Um, I mean, that's been the longstanding rumor with the Boston bombing, right? Like where did the, where did the Sarnayev brothers learn to make the bomb? 
because they didn't know how to do that. Somebody taught them how to do that or gave them the bombs. So who did that? That's never been really answered. And is it a case where well, it's not that hard to make bombs? Yeah, but it's it seems like in all of these cases, the guy who's teaching had like if some if if they put a, a, a note of warning to any conspiracy normal listener who is uh, has a guy contacting them on the Internet to try to teach them how to build a bomb. They're probably an FBI agent. <laughs> Like, it seems like in all of these cases that the person who's who's giving these instructions to these people are like FBI or something. And yeah, uh, I, I will say this. Uh, I know somebody who was one of the architects for the Great Meme War. OK. Mm-hmm. And uh, this individual was contacted by authorities in order to go after actual white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Um, but white supremacists weren't the issue at the time. It was left-wing extremism. And mm-hmm. when presented with both cases and analytics from going into these places, it was denied. And they just wanted specifically white supremacist analytics and mentions. Mm-hmm. Um, why? The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Well, I think like a lot of those groups are heavily infiltrated, right? Like you look at the uh, the group of guys who was like plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Um, like there were more FBI agents in those Facebook groups than there were actual like people involved in the conspiracy to kidnap her. And it, it really seems like in some cases, these people are either pushed or goaded into doing something. And I'm not saying you know, they're still responsible for their own actions, right? I'm not trying to say that they were entrapped or whatever, but just that I think in some cases, it's almost like creating the problem so you can swoop in and then like stop it at the last second and say, oh, we protected the Michigan governor from being kidnapped. Right. Um, but yeah. would they have ever plotted to do it in the first place if they didn't have this guy helping them plan it? who was an FBI agent. It's like, are they creating the problem? And and I sort of wonder if like we know this was occurring with like early Internet forums and troll culture. Right. So that's like sort of the, the medic warfare aspect of this. Um, but does it extend to um these sort of acts of random violence that we've been seeing in the country over the last 10 years, right? Is that also like sort of a, like a domestic Phoenix program? I think what, what Jose is kind of talking about is that this is, this information environment is kind of evolving into something that you don't have to, um, you don't have to target people individually and have like operations by different actors like you used to. You can mass manipulate and let it happen. Well, yeah. Just that like this environment's being created that these people are going to naturally be led to these extreme states of all kinds. And then that's, that's not traceable. So it's even better for whoever's trying to influence that behavior. Yeah. You just, like I said, it's like a shotgun blast, right? With buckshot, create the weaponized content, blast, 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 blast. Who gets addicted, who gets triggered, who wants to mobilize, 
the optimization and the algorithms allows you to go ahead and get those groups, go into those groups, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're going to seek out more knowledge, right? So a lot of it is, a lot of it is done on our own, right? We do it to ourselves. Um, like the Sinai Arab brothers, for example, Russian mm-hmm. intelligence gave the FBI the heads up. And what is, what is, what do they do? They respond with sending a couple of law enforcement officers to go knock on the door with no follow-up. Yeah. And was that and, because they already knew who they were? That's, that's my theory. But again, you know, look at uh, early nine 11, right. Mm-hmm. There was no interagency cooperation. So what did they have to do after nine 11 happened? They had to make interoperable decisions in order to go ahead and share information. Mm. Um, how much of that was human error? Right. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of weird things that have taken place, you know, between those two contexts. But personally, I don't think they have the manpower in order to sift through literal exabytes of information. Mm. I don't care how sophisticated your heart B or X, X key score is. There's mm. just too much information propagating unless you have, you know, some quantum computer working, you know, that is able to do all that for you. And, and connect those dots. Um, I, I don't think, and again, you know, maybe, you know, I haven't reached the highest levels of government where I've talked to people, but I have met people who do this type of work, mm-hmm. who do go after uh, nation states and cause them to lose billions, lose a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so is it being done? Yeah, absolutely. 100%, you know, um, whether it's, no, go ahead. I was going to say that's that's like what you mentioned about sort of. Uh, okay, so the 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 cyber element of this, like I'm in information security, so like I see sort of some of this close up. But I think the really scary thing is the false sense of security that um, both like the U.S. approach to cybersecurity and like the domestic corporate approach to cybersecurity gives people. Um, just from like personal experience, um, there's a lot of very bad practices and a lot of standards are not followed in, in like, corporate cybersecurity. And I know this extends to like federal cybersecurity too, because um, I used to work in that sector. And like, um, if anybody ever wants to dox me, I, literally all of the information from my clearance paperwork is was a part of the OPM breach. So I'm sure it all exists on some Russian darknet forum somewhere. So seeing all that happen and then seeing a lot of the recent conversation about like back, like encryption backdoors and stuff um, really, really worries me because it's like not only do we have an insecure like cybersecurity posture pretty much across the board. Uh, throughout all sectors of industry, um, the idea that we're then going to introduce uh, back doors to those to what little encryption we do have seems suicidal to me. I don't know if you have any any cybersecurity thoughts or not. Uh, well, like you take the colonial pipeline issue, right? Um, that was a disgruntled worker that happened to have the passwords and keys, and he passed it on yeah. to the guys, and they were able to do all that damage. And you know what I'm saying? So, uh, again, you know, what steps are companies and conglomerates taking in order to ensure um, a good mental health uh, in, in an organization? Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah, are, yeah. are you, you going to treat your, your, your workers like garbage? I mean, 
Mm-hmm. Again, you know, how many, how many people have life skills? How many of people uh, are going through school, taking these courses in order to better themselves in order to survive or um, be resilient individuals? Not many. Uh, a lot of folks don't have that. So again, um, that's human error there, right? Because yeah. profit is what I want. I want, I own you. I pay you, you work for me, right? So that's one level of it. Uh, I do know recently um, <laughs> that the, the FBI um, got hacked, right? So um, a bunch of uh, like uh, male enhancement pills, uh, spam got flooded <laughs> and uh, got sent to a bunch of people. So the FBI was sending a bunch of male enhancement pill um, <laughs> spams to people, um, but that's all they could do. Why? Because their internal like hardware structure is in a physical structure. You would literally have to break into it in order to hack all the real stuff. Yeah. All the real stuff's located in skiffs or what's called a skiff. So yeah. So I mean, yeah, there's no access to those from the outside or from the internet. So uh, I call, you know, again, you know, this is about creating institutional entropy, right? We want to create as much disorganization as possible so that the real operation takes place and we don't even have an idea that it's actually taking place. Mm-hmm. So and all like, the stuff, yeah. all the Go stuff ahead. that we're talking about is, is a mirage. Okay. The, the real operation is, you know, already shaped. It's already taking place. Um, and then the post-operation effect is going to be a more docile and more disorganized society as a result of, mm-hmm. again, epigenetic warfare. And just like in cybersecurity, which that world really comes from like the, the hacker culture and the, the social element and social engineering is like the outer layer of all that. So if you have disgruntled people, you know, it's still like the social. And if you uh, can have an impact on that, you know, it affects the, all the cybersecurity stuff, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I can say straight up that like your biggest tech surface is your personnel, right? It's not how good your firewalls are, your uh, whatever endpoint protection you have. It's it's literally almost all breaches are in, insider caused, right? They're either somebody got fished um, or somebody accidentally gave information to somebody, which I guess that'd be phishing, but you know what I mean? Like all of these hacks usually originate with either user error or users being socially manipulated or, or socially targeted. Um, uh, socially engineered was the word I'm looking for. But um, that was one thing I, I found interesting, Jose, and some of those memes that you were sharing. Um, and you were mentioning how a lot of these um, organizations or groups are, are, it's not all bots, right? Like a lot of people have this misconception that it's all like uh, chat bots or whatever. But in reality, it is usually like a human being creating these memes and putting them out. And and one thing I thought was fascinating, I, I think it was the meme that was like, it had something like you said, like um, today's Memorial day, in case you thought it was national barbecue day or something. Or yeah. And I just look, kept looking at that. And I'm like, there's something off about like the grammar or like the syntax. It's like, it's not like, it's not like totally messed up English, right? It's like perfectly normal English, but there's just something slightly off about it that makes it look like it wasn't created by like a native speaker. And I thought that was like looking at a bunch of those, you start to see that. And I was like, Oh yeah, I can actually tell in a lot of these, like just the phrasing's like a little off. Like that wouldn't be like your usual 
wouldn't be like your usual semi-literate meme creator. It's different than that too, and it's nothing that it's nothing that any it's nothing anyone would say in an actual conversation. Yeah, exactly. But it's like it's close enough that I think think that most people would catch it, right? Or really know what to look for. It's almost like a, it's almost perfect. But there's just something weird. It's like a like really good CG or something. You know, the uncanny valley effect you get. Yeah, you yeah. Still tell it's not human. It's like you can look at this and be like, I don't think an American made this. Like, but I mean that's. Yeah, it's coming from your perspective where, you know, you're someone who's been inoculated to ideas of misinformation and myth building and outright lies and propaganda. And a lot of people are just reading this stuff and they're just eating it up or they're not thinking more than just a couple seconds about it. I I thought that was an interesting part of your presentation, too, uh, with the idea of um, like entropy, like how big the meme is or like even in bite size. Right. Like how how quickly is it observed? and then forgotten about right because you're moving it into that that liminal part of memory where it can go to work on the brain yeah yeah that's uh i was sharing with uh, adam and Surfield, uh, uh that's kind of like one of the next things that i'm doing right now for a presentation next that i'm going to be sharing some of this information is how the actual equations um from this weaponized content actually targets the uh the neurochemistry and your brain identity and role. And then, um, you know, what potential impacts can be had Mm -hmm. and uh, sifting, you know, through Dr. Finkelstein's work, there's a portion in his military memetics presentation where he basically, they basically write that uh, there is at this point in time, there is nothing in their arsenal that they have that can counter or stop uh, modified behavior impacts. So if I wanted to target audience and do some damage, there's nothing that I could do to counter it. So for example, the Francis Haugen thing, Mm -hmm. there was a, (laughs) they were basically saying that she was a psyop. She was working for the government in order to censor uh, Americans. Mm -hmm. And I think I recently tweeted that uh, it doesn't matter what you think whether she was a psyop or not, she is and isn't all at once. And you can't get rid of that, right? You can't get rid of that, that, that atmosphere that's going to tether to your affective state. So whatever side you're leaning on, it's still going to exist. And so that's what that content does to you. Um, And again, you know, um, these are multi-generational issues. Like for example, I live out here or I live in New Hanover County, but I work in Pender County. Um, here's here's the demographics of Pender County. Um, the average person makes maybe twenty to twenty four thousand dollars a year annually. That's nothing. Um, I think you have maybe like twenty percent of the population that has a bachelor's degree. Um, you have high rates of suicide. You have high rates of substance use. Um, it's all agricultural based, right? So these issues do lead to how one is able to cultivate actualized right reach Maslow's hierarchy. Right. So these people, um, not all of them, and I don't, you know, I don't mean to generalize them, but there's a large majority of them that are down for Trump. And a lot of this stuff that the parents are saying, pop, you know, gets, you know, put into those kids heads. And then I have to hear it on the other end that the DNC is a bunch of satanic uh, pedophiles that are uh, this cabal of trying to undermine, you know, Donald Trump. These are 12 year old kids that for four years were bombarded with this. So we're cultivating um, the perfect uh, storm uh, for the next, you know, however many elections this issue is going to 
persist with. And I actually wrote a science fiction story about it called Codename Q, about how this generation of students essentially grows up with this memeplex um, and begins to write and create revisionistic histories, which is a huge issue that we're seeing right now. And I think that's the problem with the metaverse is that, you know, one thing that revisionistic games and, and readings and stuff like that do is it limits your ability to immerse yourself. But once you put on that fucking VR headset, man, it's over. And that's why I'm working with a psychologist right now in order to make this stuff a little bit more concrete and evidence-based in part because we don't have the administration to test for this stuff. Who, who here is going to work and talking about narrative warfare, mimetic warfare, or how weaponized content is um, basically, you know, making everyone a combatant and what it's doing to uh, gene expression, how it's going to become heritable. No one is not even, not even national security. And the, you know, the, it pisses me off, but you know, at some point we have to connect those two dots because that's the only thing that's going to save us. Yeah. That, that's an interesting aspect that you brought up. I've never even thought about that, about that the alienated, you know, populations of Rust Belt America weren't necessarily the targets of this propaganda, that it was their children that were the real targets, right? Like uh, the people, their, their captive audiences basically. Yeah. And uh, you know, traditional psyops, right? If you want to go after a perfect target audience, it's going to be the youth bulges. But right now, Russia, China, and the United States are facing a huge issue with population. Um, fertility rates all over the world are, are decreasing. Um, mm. People aren't having kids. I think the, the estimated uh, trajectory where the youngest uh, age group is going to be is going to be in Africa. Um, so we're, we're facing... Um, um, a more of an elderly population. Um, so what's that going to do, right? One, economically, we're not going to be able to survive if we have a completely mentally incapacitated youth bolt. They're not going to be able to procreate. They're not going to be able to actualize and have a sustained life. And if you have an elderly population, then how can they, you know, take care of kids, right? Yeah. Or if all these people are fighting for jobs, you know, just, it just becomes a lot more, it has more entropic effects, as we move forward. So that's like the perfect, that's why universities are targeted. Yeah. And this is a, <laughs> this is a project that I was working with, with the university where a student, a veteran student got doxxed by another student who wrote on his writing piece that he was racist. And the guy had a TBI and PTSD and um, he wasn't racist or anything like that. He wrote an absurdist piece. It was meant to be incongruent and whatnot. She totally took it to a whole other level. So I contacted the department chair and I let him know what's going to happen, what could happen. And basically, um, after, you know, multiple hours of conversation, I was gaffed off. And so I wrote a 10 page letter to the provost talking about everything that we've talked about, but a little bit more intimate in terms of like the analytics, um, which led to another conversation. But basically I told the department, look, what if that individual would have retaliated against the university or the department, you would have been liable. What if that individual would have committed suicide? You would have been liable. Why? Because your department is propagating a bunch of pathogenic narratives that are not conducive to the environment of the institution. And not only that, these kids don't have the experience to make life decisions like that. How can you, how, you know, how, how is a 19 year old white female going to tell another, you know, 
25 year old white male who's been around the world, seen some things that he's a racist. How do you make that definitive, you know, choice? Right. And of course you might be wondering, well, what, what did he write? It was just a stereotype of bar talk and it wasn't even nothing. And why am I defending him? I'm not defending him. I'm defending the idea that if we begin to dox people who have mental issues without understanding the context, then we're going to weaponize a bunch of people. And that's what's happening. And the extremes lead to other extremes. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, that's a really good point. But like you said, most people don't understand these concepts. So, I mean, and, and people just see, they really just see things as black and white. I mean, they see things as like in a melodramatic kind of way, good versus evil. And it's just so much more complicated than that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying like, uh, I think that like the last books that I read regarding, you know, socioeconomic statuses in the United States was Jeffrey Winters' book, uh, Oligarchy. And, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, inequality isn't an issue, that poverty isn't an issue, that crime isn't an issue. I'm not saying that law enforcement is or isn't an issue. Right. There's more context that goes behind those specific types of things that are exasperating uh, these other issues. So I understand what some of these groups are actually fighting for. I understand what some of the other more conservative groups are saying. But in between there, they're not realizing what great power competition means, which yeah. is World War III, Meta War, whatever you want to call it. And this environment is is um, discouraging actual dialogue between those people to find both answers, ways forward, and things in common. Well, yeah, I think yeah. that's, that's the that's in purpose, you know, on purpose. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's I think it's key too. Um, I've heard this is just anecdotal stuff, but that a lot of um, wealthy people don't allow their children to use social media like whatsoever. Right. That's true. Yeah, definitely the heads of those tech companies don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that should be your your that should be your hint <laughs> that there's that there's there's something poisonous in there that's that they don't want their children exposed to. Yeah, it's uh, it's too good for them, but the but the proles will let them let them use it, right? Well, I want you to touch on some of the ways that you think we need to move forward. A big part of your research is thinking about ways to overcome this stuff, ways to inoculate people against this this mimetic warfare and things that are destroying our societies and the, your emphasis on mental health. So, you know, you're, you're not one of these people who just like point out all the problems. Um, you've got solutions and you work with people, you know, you got boots on the ground helping people to uh, overcome this stuff. So you, you want to talk about some of your prescriptions for these, these problems? Yeah, sure. Um, pure support, right? Um, life experience, um, holistic stuff, like going out in nature, right? Mindfulness, yoga, anything that's physical activity, um, drinking eight glasses of water a day, getting your daily exercise, getting 10 minutes of sunlight in your body, having conversations with friends, um, telling someone you love them, smile a little bit more, um, try to override your own heuristics. That's like the simple stuff, basic day-to-day stuff that you should be doing. And if you're not doing that, it takes it's a little bit more difficult to do that because of the environment or whatever regulations uh, zoom is a, a good way. And I, you know, that's something that I, me and my buddy do all the time, not only just on the podcast, um, you know, doing uh, narrative identity theory type uh, mental health, but 
you know, I get on our little Facebook group that we have and we chop it up and there's no, there's no filters. We, we are who we are. Um, and I don't hide it. I don't like hiding this. This is who I really am. But the more grander stuff that we need to do and that I've been trying to get across is that we need to add wartime adaptations. And what does wartime adaptations means, right? That means having a proper education of the geopolitical landscape and the way that it's being written with the national security, within the national defense strategy, and then the national security policies. Um, it's, it's just crazy to me to think that as a CEO or as, you know, uh, a psychologist or anybody in a leadership position would think that they're immune to what China, to what Russia, to what domestic actors are doing, that they're immune to that. And they're not. You know, and, and you know, I, I say all the time, you know, I recently said that the concentric zones in, in human ecology are corrupt. Every time someone goes into therapy, they have to come back into the same toxic environments. And that toxic environment, guess what? It's smart. It's smart device based. You don't even need a heroin hit in order, you know, for you to relapse. All you need is that dopaminergic hit and then you're done. So, you know, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is uh, creating sweeping reforms, right? What kinds of reforms do we need? It should be mandatory that any of these social media platforms should be giving out actual classes on what this stuff does to your brain. The same way we do with cigarettes and any other type of um, substance. Uh, secondly, we need to have actual mental health operations teams and, you know, military language, military operations is in my head. So that's how I see things. Maybe we can call it something else, but let's call it what it is. You need to actually have people that, you know, a psychologist, uh, a therapist, a peer support specialist, someone who's trained a social worker to go into communities and start working with communities to understand the actual cultural narrative, the dialogue and the meme plexes that have been established in those communities do the proper reports, whatever that looks like, and then begin to dissect that by implementing um, the mindfulness pieces, the yoga pieces, the holistic therapies, the EMBRs, um, the nature walks, the community walks, whatever it is. It's about creating community where these types of things can't compete with uh, the atmosphere or the weaponized content. And, and that's the other part is that... Um, I'm privileged to work with a group of individuals who have worked in these types of capacities um, and, you know, the advent of a 24 seven news cycle, for example, you're competing with information uh, that is far more sophisticated than a simple meme like stop, drop and roll. Okay. So how, how do you leverage that? And, and how do you leverage that and remain an informed citizen without going bonkers? And again, that goes back to like, again, you know, how are we going to implement resilience training? What is resilience training? Well, resilience training is, is understanding how, you know, adverse childhood affects complex PTSD or complex trauma affects the human body over time. So what a lot of people don't understand is like, for example, um, I was having this conversation earlier today um, about uh, post-traumatic stress, right? <clears throat> So it's, you know, it's not, it's not like some, some secret, you know, that I have, you know, post-traumatic stress from some of the situations that I've been in, 
Um, but on top of the way that I grew up as well, right, the adverse childhood effects of growing up in a, a very impoverished community, seeing that some of the things that my father did and with participated in, um, understanding that we were very, very unfortunate during times of period made me be a certain specific way um, are all compounded together. So my body is remembering the trauma of the past. And how do I begin to fix that? Well, you need a neural map of your brain. And how do you create that neural map? You have to jot it down. So I go through a process. I have my own therapy model that I do with guys that are going to peer support. And we basically make a neural map of all the big points in their life. And we we tackle it on and we replace it with another stimulus in order to compete with that mean. Because whenever you're going through day-to-day life with all these compounded traumas and you're seeing all this weaponized content, What's actually triggering you? Is it the trauma from the past or is it this stuff? And, and so again, you know, it gets very, very, very difficult. So you have to understand not just ACEs or as they call it PACES, which stands for uh, protective compensatory uh, adverse childhood effects. They're basically the positive aspects of, of this stuff because the negative side effects of ACEs can be reversed. Um, with like daily exercise, good relationships, good eating, good nutrition, stuff like that. Um, so understanding that aspect of it, along with the transition into great power competition, um, goes a very, very long way. And then there's another aspect to it as well. And something that I've been working on and I'll, and I'll begin to talk about a little bit. Um, I don't know the nuts and bolts of precognition. I really don't. There's other people who do it better than I do, but it works. The military used programs all the time. They never really called it, you know, what it actually was, but you were able actually to use this stuff. Uh, and I've anecdotally gathered evidence from across the board, everything from people in special operations all the way to the regular infantry, where people knew, you know, they had that sixth sense where so-and-so was about to kill themselves. And a day later, three days later, two weeks later, they commit suicide. Um, we have to teach people how to properly read biofeedback, uh, look at that, have the safeguards of encryption so that it's not being used, use forecasting, right? So if I have a dream or I have an uh, intuition or precognition about something happening to so-and-so, then I need to act on that. And then you need to have the uh, actual resources in order to act on that. So what does that look like? Um, that's creating, again, mental health operations teams. What if you can't get to somebody, Right. Um, and there's a special program that I'm that I'm trying to create right now um, that can incorporate all of that. Um, and again, you know, the nuts and bolts of precognition. What does that look like? Well, experiencing precognition in the battle space, there. What I can say is that uh, it very much traverses the monastic traditions, right? So I was a specific uh, weight size. I had a specific amount of sunlight that I was getting. I had a specific ritual and practice. Uh, I was specifically indoctrinated with certain types of things. Um, and I was, you know, there's all these mechanisms that monks and like people Diana uh, talks about uh, in her uh, book, American Cosmic, that exhibited these types of monastic traditions that were able to do these um, magnificent things like biolocation and, and have out-of-body experiences and whatnot. The same thing applies, right? And I think Dave Metcalf calls it soft side. Right. So we're able to map DAOs and use intuition in order to track and locate caches and whatnot. The same thing can be done with mental health. 
Um, but it can be done a little bit more sophisticated. And that's why I want to test the biofeedback or at least what I call bioalgorithms, understanding how to read, you know, the psychophysiological effects of what's happening in the body in order for you to see it on the screen and be that much more connected. And I call that being precog compatible. Uh, we can become precognitively compatible with other people by syncing with other people. And I think how that happens is through biofeedback. Uh, so the reason why um, some of the guys operated so well, like Joe, who, who was killed in, in action, we operated on a spectrum that was unreal. We were very, very successful in the battle space in part because we were connected. Um, I didn't need to anticipate. I just knew, I just knew everything just flowed. Um, and he also exhibited a certain types of precognitive abilities. We just didn't talk about it like that back then. We just knew. We called it, yeah, this is good trading. But it really wasn't. It was something more. Um, and then why the suicides are taking place, I have a, this kind of gets a little bit funkier, but I think there's something else going on besides just what I talked about in terms of being a memetics, uh, memetics framework or what we would call a contagion. I think that we're all tethered, right? So I think Pierre um, Teilhard de Chardin had it right when he was talking about the noosphere being this encirclement of human thought. And I think that the internet was uh, is a corrupted form of the noosphere. I think the true noosphere is precognition. And I think what's happening in terms of mental health degradation and suicide is, is what I call um, precognitive tether disseverment or noospheric tether disseverment. And I'll give you this example. Um, so when Joe died, he, he was killed in an ID and he died in an awful way. And I had to go and pick him up and then put him on a, a helo. And as he was flying off, um, I was staring at the helicopter and it felt like something went out of my body and I couldn't explain what it was for a very long time. I actually thought I lost my soul. And then through a series of downloads and, and reading, I figured out that that's what it was. It was a precognitive tether disseverment. I lost my precog compatible um, tether. And as a result of it, I kind of went haywire. And so I think what could have mitigated the effects of that very traumatic experience would be resyncing with someone else, right? Automatically putting on some type of technology that would allow you to sync up with somebody else to see their biofeedback. And obviously we didn't have the skill sets back then to, um, you know, be resilient or mindfulness or anything like that. You know, all I wanted to do was kill. Uh, so I think that working on those types of things here in the near future, and again, this is why I'm working with a specific team in order to go after these more uh, difficult concepts. Um, once we have that, I think we'll be able to really stop what's taking place um, globally in terms of suicide and, and the whole mental health issue. Um, but in terms of practicality, you know, I can't go, I can't go to DOD and be like, yeah, yeah. Precognitive compatibility and precognitive tethered disseverment is, you know, now they want to see like the hard facts. And again, <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, are you familiar with the Trojan warrior program? No, I'm not. I never heard of that. So the DOD might not think you're <laughs> crazy at all. Um, like Bob Mayer wrote uh, two, uh, two books on this like Psychic Warrior and uh, something else. But um, Psychic Warrior was the really popular one. But um, no, that's I, David Morehouse. Was in the 90s? 
uh, in the nineties, he was part of a program where they took all of these like seals and special forces guys and tried to train them in like RV, um, in precognition and in biofeedback. They were like teaching them different like techniques of Buddhist monks, like breathing techniques, yoga, and this sort of thing, uh, kind of to do exactly what you're, you're talking about. Um, so these, that type of program at least existed, uh, for a certain period of time, I, I think it was discontinued, but, um, yeah, that's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think, uh, the, the stuff you were saying there is, uh, outrageous at all. Well, we've kind of been immersed into that, uh, world view. Some of those folks might not be. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, this is one of the issues that we're facing right now. Uh, so again, I have several meetings that I'm going to be, you know, attending, where I had to present information and I was trying to gather information from a, from a special operations group, whether they're doing specific types of programs still in the Marine Corps and um, turned out that they're not. So what does that mean? It means that we're no longer focusing on reading the human terrain. And when you're no longer focused on reading the human terrain, um, the precognitive capacity still exists. Just not, again, it's not as finely tuned. Um, and I'll give you an example. So I'm not operational anymore in the sense where I'm conducting uh, real world operations. I'm not protecting people anymore. I'm not getting into gunfights. And so um, my rituals have kind of lessened, but they're still very, very uh, high standard. I pack on a few pounds. I weigh 250, but I also do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and I douse a lot of caffeine because I don't want that. I don't want that activated anymore. Mm-hmm. But guess where it manifests and it manifests in other areas. And that's in science fiction writing. I'm able to forecast certain events in my science fiction. Um, and that's kind of what I've been doing right now. And two years ago, when I began forecasting uh, certain events, um, those events are now shaping here today. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I forecasted them. Um, never would have thought, you know, that, I mean, not never would have thought, but more so it's just like, okay, there's something to that. And so I got, I got to follow through with that if it's forecasted that way. And so I think that um, their abilities are going to manifest in a different type of way. And I think because everything's shifting more toward like this idea of fifth generation war fighting where everything's becoming a lot more technological, the sense-making abilities are probably going to come through using technologies uh, within the battle space, right? Antis- like not anticipated, but forecasting where potential swarms could come from um, where potential um, A2D2 systems are incoming missiles um, so forth and so forth. So I'll give you an example. Uh, right when General Soleimani was killed uh, that night I went to bed and I had this dream that an Iraq base was going to get blown up. And sure enough, three days later, uh, one of the bases in Iraq gets missiled, you know, and like 15 dudes end up getting like some serious like mm-hmm. head wounds Right now, they're working on a capacity called future, future intelligence, where they're trying to operationalize this stuff again. And so the problem with operationalizing that, though, I, I know this, like I got Army CRV training and some other stuff. And I've done a lot of research, and especially into the way uh, the Soviets were using RV, like they were using remote viewers, like on the front lines in like Serbia and stuff, um, uh, doing like battlefield operations. And the hard problem here is that um, 
there's not a clear answer about uh, whether it's precognition or it is like retro causality. Um, mm-hmm. Like in, in the instance that, you know, the space is bombed, um, if it hadn't been bombed, would you have had that precognition, right? Like it, it's almost like it has to happen for you to, in the future for you to have that precognition in the past because that information has to be passed from, the fu- from your future self to yourself in the past. Um, I think that's why it's so important in like RV protocol, like strict you know, army CRV protocol that feedback is always provided to the viewers after they've turned in their, their viewing report. Uh, so they're always shown like what their target was and, and then graded on it and stuff. But the question that brings up is, are they really determining information about the target or are they uh, getting information from their future selves basically? Um, so in the, in the instance of like, like you were talking about, this bond you shared with with your fellow soldier and 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 I think that that same like psychic bond exists between people who have like very strong romantic relationships like mother and child any kind of strong relationship between two people in like a physical space that is forged in in like highly emotionally charged experiences I think creates that entanglement mm-hmm. and um what I'm worried about in like our increasingly like you brought up the metaverse right like this increasingly digital existence um where we don't have physical proximity and physical connections with people like we used to or as many people do you worry that um the ability to utilize this like very natural human capability is going to start to deteriorate and maybe that's the point too of alienating people like they're being alienated. Oh no. So, so, <laughs> so that's what epigenetic war is. This is, this is, this is the end all. So what's happening with narrative war from a medical war from meta war is incapacitating the ability to use the executive decision-making process. This is what I say to normal people when I'm talking about my research, hmm. when it's with you, we're talking about incapacitating the precognitive abilities of individuals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sure. I don't know the nuts and bolts of retrocausality or what's taking place, but I'm getting information from my future self or whatnot. Uh, but what I do know is that, like in the science fiction writing, that super forecasting um, stuff, mm-hmm. there's multiple characters and players. Am I reading their minds as well? You know, how is that working out? I know that that's an ability that's manifested now that I'm not operational anymore and I'm not, well, I wouldn't say that I'm not necessarily tethered to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll keep that, you know, silent, but mm-hmm. in this case, I'm not, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so again, the ability does work in that way. But again, if you're targeting 52 million people that have the potential to procreate and you incapacitate their epigenetics, their offspring isn't going to have that ability and it becomes diluted because the anxiety and the depression overrun or the mental illness overruns that ability. And so that's, this is what's at stake. This is, this is what I mean by epigenetic warfare. And this is why, you know, I subtly talk about it online, you know, the whole precognitive thing, what's actually getting murdered here or killed here is your precognition, your ability to see, whatever potential forecast might take place. 
you know what that makes me think of Sergio? You know, in uh, Ingo Swan's Penetration, where he talks about the, uh, you know, these these alien extraterrestrial bioandroids and how, uh, like, they're sent here to assassinate psychic humans because only psychic humans can, like, identify them. So, I mean, I'm not, just to be well, clear, I'm not saying yeah. that's going I mean, on. But, it, but <laughs> it is getting really weird. You know, we're talking about actors using these uh information systems and artificial technology but it is hard not to see this uh also as something darker going on which jose said you know is there in this process of the machines learning you know how to manipulate us is there something else going on too and is that potentially opening up something i mean this is all wildly speculative of course but the uh, uh powers that be in the world you know think they have these things under their control now you know might this turn into something that they no longer have control over well that's you know that's the point portion i don't know if you've seen like my metal war framework that's a small version of it but there's a portion called metahumans there's already humans that exist that can wreak havoc by using these abilities um Hmm. maybe they don't they don't they don't have the lexicon that we have that that's what they're using um in fact, you know, I, I think about my all the gunfights and wartime experiences that I've had, and I think, uh, how many of the Taliban had this ability as well? Because yeah. they were, I mean, they were they were good at what they did, but how many of them have that same ability? And so, who else out there has that ability to to wreak havoc, you know, on the on the world's elite military fighting force? Right. So it's like, yeah, it's. Uh, Going back to some of the stuff you're talking about, though, like it almost sounds like you're proposing almost like what the Civilian Conservation Corps was for healing and mental health for our country. Something like that could be amazing. I mean, I don't. Something that is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know me personally. It was hard for me to find mental health resources just because of how expensive they can be for people who don't have insurance or don't right. have health care. Right. It can be extremely difficult for people to get. Um, the help that they need. So yeah, having some sort of organization that that could provide that to communities on an organized basis, you know, free of cost or whatever would be amazing. And that's, you know, that's one of the meetings that I'm having on Monday. I sit on the board of an organization called Peer Recovery Resources. And the individual that runs it is a Vietnam veteran. His name is Johnny Puckett. He's one of the only vendors in Wilmington, North Carolina that actually certifies individuals in peer support. Um, and I'm trying to bring them into the 21st century. They're a little old, but their hearts in the right place. And, you know, mental health is their number one issue. And again, you know, I implement some, I'm a WAM facilitator. So WAM is just whole health action management, basically talking about all the things that are uh, bad for your body and good for your body and what you can do in order to maintain, you know, homeostasis or equilibrium and being a functioning human being. Um, And I do, I put in some of the adaptations that I talk about. Um, Why? Because most of your time is spent on a computer or a smart device and guys, here's the kicker. We're still, we're still transitioning into 5G. Um, and, you know, there's other technologies and other studies being done. You know, um, I might slaughter it, but Mark Bacuzzi's work with the Woodbridge Institution, you know, the data sets as vectors for intention. Um, it's funny, my son ended up drawing a series of like colorful art. And then after, you know, he did it, I asked him like, what does that mean? And he said, it means motivation. And it's, it's funny because it's like purple and blue 
And the way he designed it looked like Mark Bocuse's um, visualizing art as intention study. Uh, so it was like, wow. So this means motivation to you. This is, this is what you're seeing in terms of motivation. Well, if you get a data set that you can inject into a smart base city to evoke an emotional response, to activate the HPA axis, then you no longer need an IO. You just need an anonymity from a person or an AI to constantly pump in that data set. And I wrote a science piece called Psycho Looping, where basically <laughs> the data set ends up getting found, Russia ends up getting a hold of it, and then just bombarding uh, specifically uh, mentally uh, incapacitated people or mentally ill people in order to see specific types of things. And uh, they end up doing, you know, some serious damage. Uh, so it's there. It's right around the corner. And the first line of defense is our mental health. Yeah. What you're doing in order to. Uh, and look, this is what I say. If you have an emotional response towards some type of information, you need to question that. Because um, it can it can lead you down a dark path. Um, those triggers are are serious stuff, man. And I know trigger has become a, a kind of a crappy word these days because everyone's using it. Oh, you're triggered, you're triggered, but it's a it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been an excellent discussion, gentlemen. I I, I want to continue this on the Patreon side if you guys are cool with that. Uh, just got I think we got a few more questions that we want to ask, but we can. We can do that from the uh, Patreon if you guys are cool with sticking around another like 20, 30 minutes. Um, Ren, before we uh, say goodbye to Jose, uh, tell everybody where they can find you. If nobody knows Ren by now, you you know, I don't know where you've been. but uh, uh, Yeah, you can uh, find me at liminalroom.com or various podcasts. I also run a uh, Discord server for... Um, people are interested in, in the occult and, and magic uh, called Lunar Cry. And there's some links on my, uh, my website at liminalroom.com if people want to join that. All right. And Jose, uh, please tell everybody where they can find you and the resources that you have available online, all that, all that good stuff. Yeah. You can find me on Facebook uh, under my author page, Jose Lewana Herrera or Lewana Herrera. It's a, kind of a long name. Or you can find me on Instagram as um, Lewana28. Uh, um, I also have my own website as uh, JoseHerrera03XX.org. Um, there's an email page where you can contact me. Um, and, and you can also find me on Twitter at JoseV28. And you have an organization that you work with with, uh, with veterans as well. As well right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I do uh, peer support. Uh, if anyone... You know, is in dire need of any kind of crisis intervention, I can step in. Um, sometimes I put my phone on 24-7, so sometimes I'm on call. Um, if not, you know, we can schedule something, talk about things. Um, specifically, if you're looking for, towards, like, certifications whatnot, uh, there are several programs that run across the United States. I can also pass on that information as well. Well, excellent, guys. And, of course, you know, everybody can find us, conspiranormal.com and all that good stuff. Surfiel can tell you where we're going to do a little bit of a Patreon episode with these guys. And Surfiel can tell you where to find that. Yeah, you guys can check that out at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Uh, We've got a uh, multi-tiered system there for $5 a month. You get a new uh, exclusive episode for Patreons every week. 
Um, in addition to that, we have our monthly hangouts. Uh, those are going to be transitioning into uh, Strange Realities, uh, many, many Strange Realities branded uh, speaker engagement every month. And uh, for $10 and up, you get to join the Mystic Crew and get to get a free ticket to that. Uh, but the rest of the public will be allowed to come as well for a small fee. Uh, $20 and up, you get an exclusive t-shirt, and we've got a whole lot of them. So you guys uh, check us out at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. All right, guys. Uh, coming up next week, we're going to be finishing, rounding out the year with our usual episode with Dr. Future. So join us next time on Conspiranormal. Please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.